Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, this week we begin a brand new series called Gathered for Worship. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 20, verse 7, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled Gathered for Worship. Acts 20, verse 7 is said in an almost offhanded manner. I mean, not that anything in the Bible is offhanded. I don't mean that. But it is so matter-of-fact, even without explanation. It simply says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with him, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So when was the church gathered together? Well, it wasn't on the traditional seventh day of the week. It was on the first day of the week. That is to say, you know, it's not clear in the pages of the Bible when it actually was that the church of Jesus began to meet on the first day of the week. It is clear that Jesus was raised on the first day of the week, but we're never told when the day of worship moved, you know, from Saturday to Sunday. But we do know that this transition was already complete within the time of the writing of the New Testament. And we also know that in the passage we have read, that is in Acts 20, 17, that whatever the activities of worship they engaged in, we see that they had gathered to break bread, which we know to be a celebration of the Lord's table. That is, when they gathered, they gathered around the table of the Lord, reminding themselves that Christ had bled and died for the remission of their sins. You know, as I say, it's almost offhanded because the wider context of the passage was Paul in the city of Troas meeting with the church as he's on his way to Jerusalem. I mean, where else would he meet and speak with them but the day that was set aside for the assembled people of God to meet to worship? By the time John writes the book of Revelation, somewhere around the time of AD 95, the first day of the week had already been formalized. Even though at the time of the writing of Revelation, John is exiled on the island of Patmos, the practice of worshiping on Sunday was by then so complete that John describes what he's doing on the Sunday and what Sunday had come to be called among Christians. Revelation 1.10 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. You see, that seems to indicate that he was in a posture of worship. You know, he may have been alone, but the habitual pattern of setting aside the first day of the week and calling it the day that belongs to the Lord or that belongs to the Lord Jesus, well, that was now entrenched. And this pattern has been largely sustained throughout 2,000 years of Christian history. Those of you who are older might remember the movie called Chariots of Fire. You know, it told the story of a Christian athlete, Eric Liddell, who refused to run in the Paris Olympics because his event was held on the Lord's day. And I mention that because many modern-day North American Christians find it altogether astonishing. You know, some might even say that Liddell was legalistic, and he needed to know what freedom in Christ was all about. Didn't have to worship on the Lord's Day. Well, on that matter, we need to go back to the roots of this practice. That is the practice to gather for worship one day of the week. The practice goes all the way back to the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Exodus 20, verse 8 to 11 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, 
the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What's often surprising to some North American Christians is that Jesus faithfully kept the Sabbath law. I say it's surprising to some because they are familiar with Jesus' frequent disputes with the Pharisees regarding the Sabbath. What really seems to have upset the Pharisees is that Jesus healed on the Sabbath, or that on one occasion his disciples were found to be stripping heads of grain on the Sabbath. But if you take time to study any of those passages regarding the Sabbath controversies, Jesus was not rendering the Sabbath null and void. He was faithfully observing the Sabbath as was laid down in the law of God. However, he was violating the Pharisaic traditions that had grown up around the Sabbath, and that is fascinating. Jesus was a law keeper, not a law breaker. But he was angry that the Pharisees were promoting human traditions or the traditions of men and making those traditions sound as if they had equal weight to the commands of God. And that's where the argument lay. But let's not get off track. From the beginning of Israel's national life, weekly observance of worship on the seventh day of the week was mandated and to violate it was considered to be a sin. And in the New Testament church, the practice of weekly observance of the Lord's day, that is, to cease from labors and to worship, was also expected. Indeed, it was so strongly expected that those who rejected it were strongly chastised. Hebrews 10, 24-25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So it should then be apparent that to neglect to meet together, which is the command of the Lord's day, is a command of Scripture. And when we fail to obey Scripture, we sin. Well, I wonder if you could see where I'm going with that. In this week, this one short week, I'm doing a topical series on the gathered people of God who come together on the Lord's day for worship. So I want to talk about worship and what it is and what must be done on that day. Now, when I talk about it that way, it should be apparent that I want to talk about our practice of worship. And as I do that, some of you, you know, might be getting ready, you know, if need be, to become defensive. You'll wonder whether I'm going to stray into the territory of styles of worship or what has become known in our day or in recent years as the worship wars. So let me be clear. I will not be entering into the debate on whether we ought to have contemporary or traditional worship. I don't care if the song that we sing was composed in the 1500s or last week. That's not my concern. My concern will be on what we sing, and that will become clear as we go. But you might have noticed that by immediately talking about singing, many of us immediately think, That is what is meant by the activities of the worshiping community. We sing, and that's what worship is. So let me stop right at this point, because this is my key point in this entire series. What is the believing community to do on the Lord's day? We've already seen that we're commanded to be together, that to forsake the assembly of God's people on the Lord's day, that's a sin. We're not given the freedom to stay away. I know that's surprising to some. But now prepare yourself for the next shocking surprise. The Bible indicates what it is that we are to do when we assemble ourselves. And so let me begin by offering a critique of the current evangelical movement. The conversation of what must be done when we assemble together is a conversation most evangelicals will never engage in throughout their entire lives. 
Let me quote from Legan Duncan. He said, Evangelicals have for a century or more been the most minimal of all Protestants in what they think the Bible teaches about the church in general and in their estimation of the relative importance of ecclesiology, that is, the doctrine of the church. So let's stop right there. Duncan believes that evangelicals believe that we can structure a church any way we want without doing a thorough biblical study as to how that's to be done. And curiously, of all Christians, they're the only ones who think that way. And even more curiously, he says, these are the very Christians who insist on a high view of Scripture and also who say they believe that to disobey the Bible is to disobey God. But Duncan isn't even finished at that. He really wants to get controversial because his topic is not the proper structuring of the church, nor about its commanded leadership. So let me continue to read. He says, Consequently, since the doctrine of worship is a part of what the Bible teaches about the doctrine of the church, they, that is evangelicals, are not predisposed in general to expect much in the way of important definitive teaching about the conduct of corporate worship. See, Dr. Legan Duncan, pastor of a U.S. church, is saying that he's at a loss to say why we as evangelicals have not been poring over our Bible in order to understand what God demands of us when we worship together. Instead of doing that, he says, we've convinced ourselves that we're free to construct worship any way we want to. Again, don't imagine for a moment that what I'm saying now has even the slightest bit to do with whether music is traditional or contemporary. But here's what I am saying. It's been sadly true that in order to be relevant to our culture, many evangelicals have been constantly innovating our worship service so so that every 15 to 20 years we completely revamp what we're doing. And most of the time it's in the belief that we're being relevant to the culture around us. And two things are the result. One is that worship forms that make up much of evangelicalism tend to have no historic roots connecting us with the worshiping community of the past. It makes evangelicalism something that's modern rather than reflecting the historic faith of the church throughout the ages. And second, we've not studied the scripture to find out what God mandates of us when we worship. And it's to that we give our study. As cherished children of God, we all share the Great Commission to spread the gospel across the globe. This is no simple command, but if we partner with each other, we stand a much greater chance of enriching the lives of many with the good news of Jesus Christ. This month to commemorate the importance of this partnership, Back to the Bible Canada is celebrating our monthly partners who bless this ministry with their consistent gifts. Thank you so much for your continued support. Our Bible teaching and engagement resources simply cannot exist without it. By donating monthly, you join our 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and gain access to all its unique benefits. To find out more about these exclusive benefits or to become an 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. It's a surprise to a great many that God mandates how he is to be worshipped, but let's stop there. God does command that he is to be worshipped. Yes, he does. 
There are a multitude of examples of that in the Bible. Psalm 29, 1-2. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. You see, those are commands. Worship the Lord. Worship Yahweh. Worship the God of Israel. See, the Bible doesn't say you might want to worship because that might be helpful if you did. Rather, the Bible makes worship a command. It's in the first two commandments. Well, very good. God commands us to worship. And we can go further to show from Romans 1 that a failure to worship God is the fountainhead of all human sin. Fail to worship and you'll be launched into darkness. But the Bible also has a great deal to say about how God is to be worshipped, and that might strike many modern Christians as surprising. And so in the time remaining, let me provide a basis for that. Let's start very close to the beginning at our Bible. Genesis chapter 4, the well-known account of Cain and Abel. Genesis 4, 3 and 5 says, In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So notice several things. First, both Cain and Abel bring offerings to the Lord. And whatever we make of that, you know, it's clearly an act of worship. In gratefulness to God who has provided for them, both Cain and Abel offer a portion of what they have in thanksgiving to God. They worship. But then notice that Abel's offering is acceptable to God and Cain's offering is unacceptable. So let me state it another way. God looked on Abel's worship and was pleased. He looked on Cain's worship and he rejected it. Now, I know you're going to ask, I mean, why was it? But you know, I won't be distracted at this point. We must not be distracted from the key issue. Just because we're worshiping doesn't mean that God is pleased. Worship has to be acceptable in order to be pleasing. Now, we could trace that theme throughout the Bible. Do you remember the story of the Exodus? Moses approaches Pharaoh with a word from God. He says, let my people go so that they may worship me. And of course, there follows after that the plagues. We learned about that in Sunday school. But then halfway through the plagues, Pharaoh's been sufficiently humbled. He says, look, you can go, but your herds and your livestock must remain behind. See, Pharaoh's concerned that if they take the livestock, they might never come back. But listen to Moses' response, and it's found in Exodus 10, 25 to 26. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. See, Moses is not being deceitful. He meant it straight up. We can't decide how God is to be worshipped, he says. God's going to tell us, and we're going to worship him on his terms and not on ours. Now, that matter is reinforced in the story of Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron the high priest, Leviticus 10, 1 and 2. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. That is, you know, if you decide on which incense is acceptable in the temple based on your likes and your desires, God then declares in the most dramatic terms possible, he rejects that. 
Of course, the entire basis for the tabernacle, the one that Israel built in the desert, was that it was built according to God's design, and that worship that goes on within the tabernacle is also designed by God. God is declaring that he will be approached on his terms and not on ours. I think that's also clearly seen in the incident of Uzzah during the time of David. That was the incident when David was bringing the ark of God to Jerusalem. He had the ark put on a cart behind oxen. Then the oxen stumbled, and then Uzzah stuck out his hand to steady the ark so that it wouldn't fall to the ground. And then God struck down Uzzah, and he died because he had touched the ark. I mean, often the Bible readers left to wonder, well then, I mean, what was Uzzah supposed to do? At any rate, the book of 1 Chronicles then describes the second attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And 1 Chronicles 15 verse 2 says, Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. Ah, yeah, the Bible was very plain. The ark had loops along the side, and poles were to be placed in the loops, and the Levites and the Levites only were to carry the ark. Indeed, 1 Chronicles 15, 13 records David as saying, Because you did not carry it the first time. The Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. You notice that last line? You didn't seek the Lord according to the rule or according to the command that God had given. He, that is God, has commanded how he is to be approached, how he is to be worshipped. It's never about what we think or how we innovate, but it's according to his command. You know, a moment's reflection tells us that's so. You know, for those who say, you know, why can't I just approach God on my terms? Well, God responds, you're a sinner. You can't approach me at all. But I've devised a way in which I may be approached, not on the basis of your merits, but on the merits of the sacrifice of my son on the cross. You know, the point in Luke 23, 45, that the curtain in the temple was torn in two is not that now anyone can approach God on whatever terms they like. But rather, the point is that the sacrifices and the offerings of the Mosaic Covenant have now been set aside so that God is approached through the curtain of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom alone we have access to God. I hope you see it. The Bible makes it plain that God is approached in the way he has chosen. And any modern worship service that does not begin with that basic principle is worshiping God no different than Cain. Your offering, your worship might become unacceptable. God is to be approached on his terms and not on ours. But does any of that have anything to say about the experience of God's people as they gather together on the Lord's day? And yes, it does. You know, over this week, I'm going to argue that there are several things that must attend the worship of God. And here at the outset, I'm going to list six items that must be done in worship. So first, let me acknowledge the two things that we'll all say immediately. They will include the command of Psalm 100 and verse 2, that we are to come before his presence with singing. And this also includes the command that Paul gave to Timothy in his role as pastor of the church of Ephesus. You see, in 1 Timothy 4 verse 2, we are commanded, preach the word, preaching and singing. But again, many evangelicals agree with that. But are there other things that we have left undone? So here are some of the things that I also think that must be done, and they are told us from Scripture. There are four things. Number one, prayer. Jesus said that his house was to be a house of prayer. Prayer is commanded to the gathered people of God. How sad then that prayer has often been relegated to an afterthought. You know, maybe a short prayer, but hardly 
that prayer is a major part of our worship service. Very few today think of going to church and looking forward to an extended prayer time. Second, the public reading of Scripture. See, I find it fascinating that in many churches today, Scripture is sometimes quoted in the Scripture, but never does the congregation simply become quiet and listen, settle themselves, and simply hear the Word of God being read without comment. Third, the ordinances, the sacraments, depending on you know which tradition you are from. That is, we are commanded to partake in the table of the Lord, and we are commanded also to be baptized and to be present when others are being baptized. And finally, number four, uh, there are certain things that also God commands of us, which include the giving of an offering. I will make the case that the giving of an offering is an essential part of our worship to God. Well, so during this week, I'm going to unpack all these six, which I think are commands of what God requires of us when we worship. But how tragic when, you know, the preaching of the word is, you know, reduced to a, you know, and topical encouragement, or when prayer is reduced to non-existence, or when the congregation never quiets themselves to hear the word of God. How sad when songs don't arise from corporate singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, but are reduced you know, to a performance band that people simply watch. Well, I speak as a pastor. I'm not here to condemn. I'm here to encourage. I'm here to invite us to think. I'm inviting us to consider what is acceptable. Would you join me for the rest of this week as we consider this matter of the worshiping of God's people? Thanks for your message, John. Thanks. It's going to be a great series. But let me ask you this. People are listening right now, and they may think you're taking freedom out of worship, out of the worship service. What would you say to them? Yeah, I'm certainly not doing that. I mean, I believe there's all sorts of room for creativity and and using all of the gifts that we have to worship and, uh, you know, to further worship in new ways that may have never done before. Having said that, however, we must never abandon uh, those, if I can, those, you know, those pylons that God has driven down through his word and saying, here are the things, don't depart from these. You've got to hold on to these certain principles, and they must be there in your worship service, because if you don't do those things, you're not worshiping me as I've instructed you to do. So I think there's lots of room for freedom, but it can't be unrestrained freedom It must be freedom under guidance. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Gathered for Worship, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, it's Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. You know, we believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Neufeld available on this station. But we know that there are times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video with Dr. John. But also take the opportunity to learn how to subscribe for our ministry podcasts, the YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust 
is as widely available to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.